Morning, everyone. How you guys doing today? All right? You get dug out okay? Yep. No falls in the parking lot? Okay, we're good. We're good. All right. Good to see you today. Listen, we are on week two of a seven-week journey together with over 800 other churches of every stripe and variety in the Chicagoland area called Explore God. And Explore God is taking a look at seven foundational questions. Seven foundational questions to Christianity, but I believe which are seven foundational questions to life. And what we're doing is we're just inviting people to come and explore God together. Maybe you're here today and you're a Christian. You've been a Christian as long as you can even remember God is deep. And we want to invite you to explore him more fully. Maybe you're here today and you've never really had the experience of God in your life. Certainly not the experience of a formal group of people who are walking together to explore God together. Church wasn't your thing. It wasn't your parents' things. We're glad you're here. We, we want to invite you to explore God with us. And through these seven weeks, our hope is that by exploring and coming with our honest questions and speaking into these, these foundational life topics, well, that we do meet God and that we discover him deeper and more. Now, today, week two, which begins week two, is probably the most foundational question of the entire series. Is there a God? Is there a God? Now the answer to that question, particularly in a context like this, seems so obvious, doesn't it? Like, do you really think I'm going to tell you no today? (laughs) But is it so obvious? Because quite honestly, whether, whether you're a pastor or not, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you've been a Christian for years or not, haven't all of us at some time wondered, is this real? Am, am I deluding myself? Am I, am I drinking the Kool-Aid? Am I just continuing to believe something easily that was handed to me? Is a child, haven't all of us found ourselves in those places wondering, questioning, doubting whether God is actually real or not? And even if we do maintain that God in some sense is real, that, that we've got him right. I don't need a show of hands on this, but the more conversations I have with people across the spiritual spectrum, the more I'm convinced that this is a universal question. Is there a God? It is the foundational question of life. Period. I don't care what philosopher it is, what poet it is, what background, culture, or belief system they come from. From Nietzsche to Kierkegaard, right? From Marx to the Pope. Everyone has written about, wrestled with, and wondered, is there a God? It is the conversation and central question to philosophers and physicists. It is the foundational question to the ordinary person on the street. Now, I want to show you something today, and some of you have probably seen these before. I don't 
actually remember the history of how this was first put together. But have you ever seen these letters children have written to God? I got a a few excerpts here today. Actual letters, word for word, written to God by kids. Dear God, are you really invisible or is that just a trick? Lucy. How about this from Frank? God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family and I can never do it. How about this? Did you really mean do unto others as they do unto you? Because if you did, then I'm going to fix my brother. Oh, Darla. Arnold, God, it's okay that you made different religions, but don't you get mixed up sometimes? Isn't that fantastic? How about this? Dear God, how come you did all those miracles in the old days, but you don't do any now? Dear God, I wish there was no such thing as sin. I wish there was no such thing as war. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother. (laughs) Now I gotta ask are you there just a little bit? You find yourself at some point looking at these questions written by, if I remember correctly, what were six-year-olds, resonating just a little bit. Isn't it fascinating how the questions that we have in our childhood are often the same questions that we have in our adulthood? And even if the wording of the question might shift, the foundational kind of issues are still at play. All of us have questions for God. And the good news is this. God is not afraid of your questions. And God is not angry about your questions, nor is God disappointed that you would dare think something like that or ask something like that. God wants you to ask your questions. I do believe that God exists, and I do believe that God is real. And I'll be sharing some of why I believe that momentarily. But to begin with, I believe that God is big enough to handle our questions, and he invites them. And I can tell you this with certainty. Here at Fellowship of Faith, we are not afraid of your questions either. We're not angry that you might ask something, or disappointed that you would dare think something. We invite your questions too. And we think a healthy road to God and a healthy spiritual journey means coming into direct play with our questions, not hiding from them. Interfacing with our questions openly and honestly without embarrassment or shame or hiding from them. Whatever your questions might be, they are safe and welcome with God And they are safe and welcome with us here. But I think the hard thing, like these letters, is that when God doesn't answer back in the way that we ask, we're not always sure where to go with things. 
We might write letters to God, but then when God doesn't write a letter back, what do we do? All of us have found ourselves in times of struggle, haven't we? Crying out, praying out to God. I find this to be true among atheists just as much as it is true of theists. And yet then when God doesn't answer back, at least in the way that we've asked, we start to wonder, we start to question, we start to doubt, God, are you even listening? God, are you even there? God, are you even real to begin with? See, what I've found is that God often does not answer our questions about him in the same mode and means by which we ask. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't give evidence or indication for his presence in existence. Now, you can Google this till you're blue in the face. Classic questions and classic evidence for the existence of God. And I just invite you this week to have some fun that way. But let me share with you now just briefly a few kind of classic arguments that people have kind of rested in for an indication that, yes, God, in fact, is real. That there is, yes, in fact, a God. Let me start here. It's a classic one. You look at the creation around you. This world in its most intimate and personal way to the most far-reaching ends of our cosmos. And it would seem that when you look at this universe around us, that there's something special here, that there's something that isn't just random or accidental. That this just doesn't happen. On its own, whether you're looking at a galaxy, light year upon light year away, or the functioning of a cells, or even at the emotional level, the bonds and the connections that creation has with each other, the fine-tuning of this universe, how everything is in just proper balance with each other to a mind-staggering degree that leaves you in a place going the statistical probability of this just spontaneously happening makes playing the Powerball look like absolute certainty. That you look at the wonder of this creation around us and you go, there has got to be something or someone behind this all. And someone who cherishes things like beauty and intimacy, and goodness. I love how the psalm puts this. Vicki read this just moments ago, but let me reiterate this again. Listen to how the psalmists would kind of deal with this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day. The creation pours forth speech. Night after night, it displays knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. The words to the ends of the earth see God in this place. Or how does Paul put it when he writes 
to these Roman Christians. What may be known about God is plain to even those who don't know him. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made so that we find ourselves, even just by looking at the world without excuse. Creation itself seems to sing of the presence and hand of God. Or how about this? The sense of conscience. The sense of right and wrong that all of us seem to have. Doesn't matter what age you've lived in, what culture or language you were brought in, up in, what belief system was laid out at some foundational, fundamental level. Humanity, as long as history records, seems to have this sense that in this world there is an intrinsic sense of right and wrong, good and evil, that transcends what you might even be able to discern from creation alone. How does the Bible put this? Paul will write later, Indeed, even when pagans who do not have the law of God do by nature the things required by the law of God, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. But they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accused, now even defending them. Have you noticed this? You never have to teach any fool the difference between right and wrong. We can deny it. We can avoid it. We can rationalize it. We can make excuse. But deep in all of our hearts, isn't it clear? Isn't it clear at some fundamental level when we are doing right and when we are doing wrong? Hasn't it proven to be clear? And everyone around us. I love how Dostoevsky puts this. If God does not exist, everything is permitted. Because everything is left to your desire, your strength, your will, and your ability to get what you can by any means. Does that seem like the way the universe is tuned to you? Does something seem fundamentally off in that, even though you can look at creation and see survival of the fittest at so many levels? No, it seems like there's something more embedded into the fabric of this universe, something that we can't see that's tuned into the hearts of humanity itself. And then there's this. Others will argue that it just doesn't seem meaningless. It seems like there's a purpose. 
Even if I don't know what it is, it seems like there's a purpose to this place and these people. It seems like there's purpose for me, that life has meaning, that it's going somewhere, that the universe is going somewhere and not just to a place of meaningless existence. Philosophers will call this evidence by design or the teleological principle. I don't care about that. I care about what it means. I love this quote. By C.S. Lewis, an atheist who came to become a Christian and one of the biggest defenders of the Christian faith in the mid-20th century, he writes, Creatures are not born without desires or with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Can I ask you today, have you ever experienced that ache or that longing in your heart that all the relationships and all the work and all the achievement and all the pleasures of this world simply can't satiate? As that 16th, 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal once put it, each of us has a whole-sized hole, a God-sized hole in our heart that only God can fill. For some of us, it's very defined and articulated. For some of us, it is just a vague ache and longing. But can you resonate with the experience of longing for something more, something beyond what the things of this world can fill. And then, of course, there's revelation. People who have claimed to witness God, see God, interface with God, who have claimed to have moments when God has shown them something or worked in such ways that go beyond coincidence and bearing testimony to that. This is touching just the tip of the iceberg. But can I ask, how's the evidence sitting with you? Is, is some of what I'm sharing with you today convincing? Suggestive? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. But it is fascinating to me that that in poll after poll, in this generation and previous ones, 80 to 85% of people around the world will say that they believe in God even if they claim they are not religious or spiritual. It's interesting. It's like God gives just enough indication of his presence to invite us to believe in him. But not so much as to remove all doubt. 
Which leads me to a follow-up question as well. It's not just a question of whether God exists. But there's also the follow-up question that if he does exist, who is he? I'd like to share another quote with you today by William Temple, Archbishop of the Church of England, going back some time. And he writes this. If your conception of God is radically false, then the more devout you are, the worse it will be for you. Because you're opening your soul to be molded by something else. It would be better for you to be an atheist than to get God wrong. Here's what he means. If you're conception of God is wrong, then you will interact with that conception of God in wrong ways. And by interacting with that idea of God in wrong ways, it will cause you to become a distorted version of what the true God has intended you to be and lead you to do all kinds of destructful and harmful things. If you believe that God is fundamentally violent, that God is someone who likes to storm the world by force. If your conception of God is that he's the biggest and strongest and he is going to exert his will no matter what, well then chances are your religion, your belief, is going to become violent too. If you believe, well, if you believe any number, of distorted things. How will that affect your perception of God too if you believe that God is a judge? Dangling judgment over you. Waiting and watching with a little bit of glee for you to slip up so that he can strike you down or hold you to account. Well, your interaction with him is going to be is such that you not only portray and treat God in the wrong way, but that you completely lose sight of the intimacy and love that the one true God happens to be. Or maybe you have what I like to kind of call the small group God. You know, small groups. Sit around with some other people to talk about God and laugh about God. And maybe laugh at him too. Treating God kind of like he's an equal. Kind of like you and me. A far cry from the inscrutable God who is all powerful and all knowing that the reformers of old used to have. That me and God were kind of on the same plane. Except maybe he's a little wiser, nicer, and more forgiving. Well, then it's no wonder that your approach to God would be to not really take him seriously, but the convenient friend who's there only when you need him. Do you see what I mean? There's been a fascinating poll of younger generations today. It started with millennials, but now it's kind of continued into iGen. And it's both referring and, and, and revealing the same kind of thing. 
A belief in God that you got to get to this phrase. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. You unpack that? A God who's just really about living a moral life and, and what help, self-help he can bring to me, but someone who's fundamentally distant, who put it in motion but isn't really involved other than some commands or principles. Let me read you this one quote from a high schooler, not from this church, but poignant nonetheless. This young woman wrote, God is like someone who is always there for you. I don't know. It's like God is God. He's just somebody that'll always help you go through whatever you're going through. When I became a Christian, I was just praying, and it always made me feel better. It's not a case that all of these things are fundamentally and completely wrong. But when they become the sole basis for how we understand God... Distortion reigns. Let me read this quote to you from A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And for Christians, our understanding of God is intimately and inextricably tied up with the person of Jesus. That for Christians, when we see Jesus, what we believe is that this is the clearest picture of God that we can have. That when we look to Jesus, and not just what he taught, but who he was, and how we, he acted, that this is the starting block for understanding who God actually is. That we see this man who, despite claiming to be God, invited no worship, invited no sense of self-glory or self-grandizement, who was humble and gentle at heart, and yet simultaneously possessed the power over creation, authority. Authority not just to make right judgment and to speak wisdom, but authority over the forces of this world itself, forces over humanity, over disease and death, forces over the nature and supernature world that is around us. No one that was powerful, but one that was good whose power and authority was good. Not to others' harm and not to his own selfish cause, but sacrificial, even to the point of humility, suffering, and shame. No, this is the God that we believe in, the God that we worship, the God whose care and concern is for the least of these. Little children, the sick, the old. A God whose heart is for those who are far from him, 
Willing to do whatever it takes to seek them and pursue them. A God whose heart is for those who hate him. And their hate for him does not change. His love for them one bit. It was Jesus who said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do as they spat in his face. This is the God we serve. Is there a God? I believe there is. And I believe God's left his thumbprint to indicate his presence in all sorts of ways. But more than that, when I see Jesus, I see a God I can get down with. A God I can get behind. A God that I want to be. When I see Jesus, I think I see God most Clearly. This is what the Christian faith testifies to whom God is. I want to leave you with one more quote today. It's another C.S. Lewis quote, and I'm giving it to you because C.S. Lewis rocks. Listen to what he says. I believe in Christianity is I believe that the sun has risen. Not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Isn't that awesome? I want to read it one more time. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not because I see it, but because by it, I see Everything else. It's not just a matter of whether there is a God or not. It's the matter of everything. Because whether there is a God or not impacts and changes everything. And my hope is that you will come to see by what Jesus has shown by what God has indicated. And I believe this firmly, that if you see by it, everything changes for you. And it's in that place that God invites you to trust him. His existence but also the nature of who he is as he so earnestly desires to come and walk with you.